Hello and welcome at Book Lovers Companion. My name is Edith and right next to me is not even an empty chair this time for our lovely teacup because, like last time, she's absolutely busy doing tea things. That's what teacups do. Don't we know that all? But here with me from across the pond is another lovely guest and let's welcome her. Hello, Lisa, and welcome at Book Lovers Companion. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> It's wonderful. You are an independent crime fiction author, and you have written quite a few books, not just under your real name, but also under a pen name. Mm -hmm. but, my, my, yeah. my previous name was Lisa Polisar, and I have four books published under mm -hmm. that name. Mm -hmm. And your most recent one is Salt Island. Yeah. And yeah, here it is. Splendid. And what can you tell us about this book? Of course, not giving too much away, of course, because people should read it. It's quite a ride, I have to tell you that, dear listeners. But let Lisa tell us what it is all about. So Salt Island is the second book in my ENA investigation series, and I'm really more of a standalone crime fiction author. This is the only <clears throat> this is the only series that I've ever written. Salt Island is book two, where it takes the reader through kind of a deepened mythology of the story themes and of the primary character, Mari Elwin, and her investigation partner, Derek Abernathy. So a couple unusual things about this book. Part of the story takes place in the Caribbean, and that's actually a region where I don't see a lot of representation in crime novels. So part of it takes place in California, but then part of it takes place on the island of Tortola in the British Virgin Islands. Another um, interesting thing is that it's a first-person thriller, and really most of my recent publications are first-person thrillers. I think the more traditional model might be third-person omniscient thrillers, but the point of view um, of seeing the entire book and everything that happens through the eyes of that main character, that's just what's been emerging for me lately. So the entire series is seen through the eyes of Mari Elwin, the main character. And would you also agree that writing first-person narration makes it far more intimate Absolutely. Yes. It, it makes it far more intimate for the reader, allowing you to deepen the character's voice to the reader and allowing the reader to connect more with that character. But there are also some limitations with it because the whole thing is seen through the eyes of just one person. So if you want to show what's going on simultaneously in other ways, you have to be kind of clever about that. And it's, it's, it's tricky, but uh, there it's, a, it's really a trade off. And first person is just kind of what's coming out for me lately. And I try to stay true to my muse and we'll see how long that goes. Mm. You can't be omniscient as a first person narrator, because you can't know everything. That's right. There are certain tricks that you can do, though. You know, you can you can show what's happening in other places through other characters, through a phone call, through surveillance equipment when you're monitoring someone. So there are tricks that you can use um, 
but I think the advantages of first-person point of view for mystery and thriller, uh, I think they outweigh the disadvantages. Mm. And you mentioned your characters. I mean, we have her, Mari, as the main character of the story. We see and um, experience everything through her eyes. And uh, I've, I've read your book and there's a lot of baggage. There's not just uh, the current case, but there's also a lot of things from her past that um, come back and play a vital part also in this book. Absolutely. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I really think her baggage is one of the things that makes her interesting. You know, I mean, when, when I read crime novels, uh, of course, people tell you no one wants to read about a happy, well-adjusted character. They want someone who's flawed. They want someone who's struggling. They want someone who's bottomed out so that the reader can identify that well, identify with them through their own experience and then root for them and want them to succeed and reach the other side of it. So it's something that kind of enables character transformation if you show them really sort of struggling and kind of clawing their way back up to a sense of equilibrium. Um, yes, Mari has a lot of baggage from Her previous life and job as a CIA operative, she was shot in the line of duty, she was out of commission for about six months, and she thought, I don't want to do this anymore, and she opened a private investigation firm. And then she realized that she couldn't do that alone, so she took on a partner, Derek Abernathy, and they became um, this wonderful business partnership throughout all three books of the series. Mm -hmm. And we learned that not only she has a past with the CIA, but also her um, absent father. Let's call him absent. Yes, and, and I think that might be one of the more important kind of underlying themes of the whole series is part of her baggage is she's looking for the father, for, for the father who was essentially absent her whole life. She does get to see him in certain points in the series. I won't say which of the three books, but, um, but he was gone all the time. And he had many excuses for it. And she didn't find out until later that it's because he was a CIA operative and a, a known spy, as she discovered later. So you, you think of that and you understand why, why he wasn't at the homestead in, um, in North Dakota and then eventually in in Southern California, um, but she's looking for him. She's not just looking for him so that they can spend Christmas together. She's looking for him so that she can hammer him with, with heartfelt questions. Why weren't you there for me? What were you doing? Why did you prioritize this other life in your career over me and mom? And what's wrong with your priorities? She's got a lot of unfinished business with him. And I think she's hiding from that like we do as humans. I mean, baggage mm -hmm. like that, resentment, loss, they're, they're uncomfortable. We don't want to deal with them. I think sometimes as humans, we push them away into a corner when we can deal with them later. And sometimes the mind just th does that on its own. So mm -hmm. I was trying to identify with real sort of universal human themes in this book. And she definitely has, uh, has some things she's working on. And... The crime in this novel, it is a current thing. I mean, the topic itself is very current. And was there 
a certain story, a certain news information that gave you the idea? Or have you been been thinking about this kind of crime uh, before you wrote the book? It's a great question, Edith, and I know you you talk about this topic a lot in your um, in your interviews with other authors. And I always love how authors answer it a different way. You know, you say, "Where did this idea come from? Was it one thing in your life?" Or I honestly just don't know. That's the most honest answer I can give you. I have worked in the business world for a long time. I've worked in corporate America for like 20 years in various. Um, uh, in ver for various companies. Um, I got my MBA a few years ago, and that gave me kind of a deeper look into why some of the business mechanics work the way they do. And we see a lot of corporate corruption all around us. We see it with small companies. We see it with huge multinational organizations. We, there, there's, uh, that, There's just a lot kind of that goes on behind the scenes. And when you look at human, um, the, the human motive, motivations for behavior, you start kind of peeling back the layers and, and there's a lot there to see. And I think I have worked for some companies for a long time and I've gotten to see kind of um, the people and the motivations of why things happen the way they do. And I like uncovering that. And I won't say that I've seen a lot of corporate corruption in my life. I've worked for some wonderful companies and I've had some wonderful, wonderful jobs, but we see it on TV. We see it in movies and I'm so intrigued by that. I'm always looking for what's the deep, dark secret. What are they hiding? I want to find it. And I think readers of mysteries want that too. Readers want um, kind of like that golden nugget at the bottom of, you know, this happens up here topically. This is the topical crime. And then like you get into the book and you see, oh, well, this is the reason for that. And then you realize that that's just the tip of the iceberg. And then you keep peeling back these layers, layers and you realize, oh my goodness, this is really what's happening? Wow. I love when authors do that to me as a reader. And that's what I hope I do for my readers too. White collar crime, do you think that it's something that is too easily overlooked sometimes? I think yes, because I think it's easier to conceal um, than other types of crime. I mean, you know, like, like concealment, that's really the primary, um, the, the primary interest and motivation with a crime is if you're going to commit a crime, you don't want people to know about it. So you, so you want to hide it when it comes to white collar crimes. I think there might be a lot of other options for hiding it, especially if it's a multinational company like the one that I write about in Salt Island. You know, there, there are a lot of layers. There are a lot of divisions. There are subsidiaries. You have money in this place, and then you have money in this place over here. And it, it really takes a, a careful investigator to start kind of pulling it all together to, to sort of see the heart of, this is what's really going on. Oh, my goodness. This is what they're really doing behind the scenes. So mm -hmm. I, think, I think it takes a lot to find out what's happening. But, uh, yes, to... To your point, I think that I think that it is overlooked. Mm. And did you have um, an experience where you felt that real life sometimes is even more unbelievable than what you wrote in your book? Constantly, <laughs> pretty much every day when I turn on the news. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. And. May I ask you, Lisa, what would be your advice for any other aspiring crime author out there? 
be he or she wants to be independent or publish traditionally? What would what would be your advice to them? I think um, it's a it's very very personal. I think if someone wants to be traditionally published, go down that path and completely pour your heart and soul into it. Try to get an agent. Come up with a really good query letter. Educate yourself about what makes a good query letter. Write your query letter. Research different agents that you know are interested in your genre. Use manuscriptwishlist.com and find out which agents would be good and be very directed and intentional about that path and get them interested in your book and try that for a while. And if you don't get what you need, then look into smaller publishers or um, maybe larger um, publishers that don't require having an agent. There, there are a lot of those. And there are mid-sized publishers. They could also, they could also self-publish a book. Um, there are so many options. That, that's what's beautiful about the publishing landscape right now is there's so much available to us that used to only be available through like one or two or three pipelines. Now there's so much that's available to us, um, available to anyone at any time. So I would say if your heart wants to traditionally publish, go down that path and pour yourself into it and give it your best shot. And if you don't find what you need, look at some other options. And if anyone wants to email me, my email is lisamarietolls at gmail.com. And I'm always happy to talk to novice authors and share some of what has worked for me and some of my pain and suffering along the way. And if I can make the path easier for anyone, that warms my heart. As readers of books and as humans consuming these alarming news stories, I feel like we never really know the the whole picture. I mean, mm. you know, like, like an author, I, I'm creating something that's fictional. And of course, in the beginning of the story, I'm going to give the reader just like a tidbit here and a tidbit there. And really the, the best thing that I can do for the reader is to make them confused but interested. Like when they get to the end of like chapter 10, I want the reader to be scratching their head saying, well, what's going on here? What, like, Why? Because then they want to keep turning the pages. I think in real life, we hear what um, what we see on news headlines, and that just gives us kind of like a crumb and a tidbit, and we still don't really know what that world was. So yeah, I think that is a fascinating, alarming story, and there are so many of them that we see. Mm. And you said at the beginning that you wanted to put the Caribbean on the map for the readers because it's a place that is not uh, mentioned too often. Why is that? Why, why are you interested in this, in this place? Um, there, there's a, a TV series that I love called death in paradise. Uh, that yes. Takes Robert Farragut. Yes. Uh, yes. And I, I just love, I love the scenery there. I love the beauty. I love the culture. I love so much about the about the British Virgin Islands um, and, and really about the Caribbean in general. My husband and I had planned to go there, I think, right before COVID. So, of course, we didn't go. 
and even since then we still haven't gone but um but i'm intrigued with that culture and i don't see it represented a lot in books and mm. so I, I don't make a conscious decision that this book is going to take place here it just kind of like arrives i mean i'm sure that all the uh, all the authors that you interview say the same thing i mean even for people who uh, you know you have pantsers and plotters people who are pantsers they don't plot their books they just put their their fingers on the keyboard and ready, go, and let's just see where it takes us. And I think that's awesome. And then there are people who plot their novels and they might spend six months plotting everything that's gonna happen systematically, methodologically, so that you know they're just kind of ticking things off of a list. I'm literally right in the middle. So I, I do some pantsing, but I also do some plotting. Um, so I think, um, I think there are a lot of options, um, for you when we're thinking about how to put things together, but location, um, that's something that has to sort of emerge for me. Mm -hmm. And, and that, and that was what came up for this series. So book one in the series, Hot House, that took place just on the California coast. California is mainly where all three of the books in the series take place. That one was all, um, all California, Southern California and also San Francisco. Salt Island um, takes place in Southern California, also inland the Central Valley to some agricultural farms, very, very small communities, which was kind of a, a, another sort of interesting thing about this novel, because you don't read a lot about that in, in crime thrillers, I don't think. And then the Virgin Islands. And then book three takes place mostly in, um, in Southern California. That will hopefully be coming out next summer. And that book is called Switch. And it will, it's, uh, and the theme is quantum computing, which is one of my, um, mm one of my kind of interests and passion areas as a lay person, of course. Um, and that will mostly be in Southern California. Mm. And may I also ask you, you, you mentioned pantsers and plotters and you said you are in between there. I wanted to ask you about how you kept a track of all the different threads in your novel, because there's, like I said before, there's a lot going on. There's a lot in there. And I often wonder, how do people do that? Do you have, I don't know, a wall, a, a whiteboard where you put different sticky notes with different colors so you don't get lost? How do you do it? It's, it's very, it, it's hard. When, when you have a series, I think a series has a lot of advantages because, you know, now that I've written um, all three books in the series, I know her. I know the main character. I know what she cares about. But when I wrote um, when when I wrote Salt Island, I have sort of this grid that I use. I, I mean, I, I I do take notes, and um, I do have spreadsheets where I kind of keep track of things. And I have the main part of the book that I'm writing, and then I have sort of reminders that I include in the draft that I'm writing. So if I'm writing a first draft, I might put something in parentheses that says, remember to follow this up when I get to blank and I'll yellow highlight that. So by the time I get to the end of the first draft, I have this sort of map. I have the, the story from start to finish, the beginning, the middle and the end, but I have a lot of notes throughout reminding me, don't forget to follow this up or um, check page 77 for this reference. So I, I, set, I set a lot of um, kind of cues to myself as I'm going along. And then when I get to the different levels of 
my self-editing, when I go through it myself before I send it to my editor, I try to clean all of those up before I send it to her. Mm -hmm. And we talked about uh, the importance of, oh, I read about the importance for you also of writing community. And I mentioned you're an indie author. How important and how helpful is it to have a certain kind of community to help you go on or support you? I think writing communities are critically important to every author at any stage of their career with any model. If you're a big five uh, author and you have a, a prominent New York literary agent, if you're a self-published author, or if you're an indie author working with a smaller publisher like I am, I think your writing community is your lifeline and is your connection to other people on the writing journey. You have critique groups. You have writing partners. I, I have critique groups and I have writing partners that I uh, that I work with. And I have writing friends who I can send beta versions to of my book. And their primary job is to, of course, tell me everything that's wrong with it. I don't want to hear what you like about it. Tell me what's broken. Tell me what I need to re... Tell me what I need to... Um, to fix. Tell me what you like later when you leave a review on Amazon. But for now, I need to know from your unique perspective, if it's someone in my crime writing and mystery writers community, Mystery Writers of America, and also Sisters in Crime, those writers know what's appropriate for this genre and what's not. And they're critically important. And I have some, some absolutely treasured, cherished friends from this community. So I feel so incredibly fortunate. Mm -hmm. I under, absolutely understand it. And may I also ask, since you mentioned you are in the IT business and it takes also, it will be a part in your next novel, have you ever thought of writing a different genre, let's say sci-fi? I have written a couple of sci-fi short stories early in my career, early on. And I love sci-fi. I watch sci-fi. Um, I don't really read sci-fi books anymore these days, um, but I do love the sci-fi genre. Um, my thriller called 95 that I wrote, I think, five books ago is not sci-fi. It's, it's a tech thriller. It's a technological thriller, and it's a young adult thriller about a college student. That book um, is about the dark web. And um, it is a technological thriller, but there are some aspects that people have thought were kind of sci-fi. What was fun about that is there were some technologies in there that people thought, oh, that's not real. Yeah, that's, that's your sci-fi novel, right? And, and for uh, each person that brought this up, I said, no, everything, that book is, everything in that book is actually, is, was actually researched and is available in the world today. One of them was a self-writing notebook, you know, something that we see in, in Harry Potter and other things. Um, there's a self-writing notebook available. It's called a smart notebook. It's, it's, it's on the market. You can buy it. So that was kind of fun is people thought that book was sci-fi. And I said, no, it's, it's just a thriller. Mm -hmm. We also get sometimes the idea that when people write about the CIA, for example, like you do, a lot of what is mentioned, not in your book, but in other books, is sci-fi. But my question to you would also be, are you a secret agent yourself? I wish. When, uh, when, uh, in, one, in one job that I had um, uh, a while back, I, w I did have a colleague 
um, actually it was a boss who had me work on a side project and the side project that I worked on was with someone, um, with the state department, with the, um, who, who was also a CIA, um, operative. So I do have some experience, um, working with people in the CIA and from him, I learned some things about the hierarchy, the organizational structure, kind of the, a day in the life of, of what he does. And what was so funny about him is, you know, he's, he's a CIA agent. So this probably won't be a surprise. His business card said, Tom, and the, and there was no there was no phone number there was no location it just said the word Tom, and on the back of the business card it said just Tom. So he wasn't giving anything up. I mean, like the, he could give his card to someone and say this is my name, but I mean, you know, that probably wasn't even his real name. And even the name that he gave me, that probably wasn't his real name. But so I so I do have some experience um, working with someone from the CIA. I was working on just a short. Uh, a short side project um, with him through another employer that I was with. And that was really interesting. And I learned a lot from him. I learned that there are some misconceptions and also some of the things that we think happen at the CIA really do. And yeah. since that, and since that time, um, I have met a couple other people who, um, who actively still work for the CIA. And, um, and I've gotten to kind of vet some of those misconceptions within myself too, and sort of ask them questions. So I did do research, um, on the CIA, um, for, for part of, part of this book and for that kind of mythology about Mari's father in the series. That was fun. Mm -hmm. And what about contacts to the police? Since her partner, um, Derek is a former police officer and there's another character in your book, who also works for the police. Did you also research or do you also have contacts within the police? I do have contacts within the police, not in California where I live, but, um, but previously where I lived. And, um, and I do have opportunities to ask questions and send people content that I've written and ask them to review it. So I have, I have a couple of friends and a couple of technical contents that review some of my material and they come back and they say, yes, this is correct, but no, this isn't done anymore. This is now what we use for this. And so they kind of correct different mechanics. And I think that's terribly important. Mm -hmm. uh, also for you to say accurate, because sometimes you get readers who point out, you know, that's not that's not the way it is done and so on. Did you have that as well? Because you thought it is done that way and it turns out, mm, no, not at all. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think authors need to be writing for those critics, writing for someone who works in that so that they can so that they can vet whether that's true or not. We have to assume that someone who knows a lot about this subject might be reading it and what would they say about it. So part part of the Salt Island um, story was about eco-terrorism and it was about oil companies and fracking. Um, mm. So I, when I got my MBA, I did my dissertation on, um, on fracking and I had to do three years of alarming, horrible research on fracking to understand every part of it. And that wasn't fun, but it was a great education. And, and again, that was a way for me to kind of peel back the layers and sort of challenge the assumptions that I had about fracking. And yes, it is absolutely alarming. It is absolutely environmentally destructive. But now I kind of understand more about why 
different parts of it have to be the way they are. And so that gave me a good kind of technical basis on which to write this story. I was writing from my, from my experience and from the research that I did when I got that degree. And do you think that will change? I mean, this whole concept you, you uh, show us in your book. I don't know how much I can tell you, the listeners, without giving too much away. Oh, that's always so hard when we talk uh, with uh, crime fiction authors. Um, this, this, this tech company, this, this startup is focused on alternative energy. Right. And um, there are certain fractions out there who are not too happy. Let's put it that way. And do you think that is still something in the real world that we have to be careful of or have a closer look at how this uh, uh, whole alternate energy is going to develop? I, I think there are some amazing measures of progress with alternative energy, and I love reading about them. I subscribe to newsletters. I listen to podcasts when I'm on the treadmill, and that's how I keep up to date on what's happening with this area and this area. And I think the reality is, is that we're going to be at least partially dependent on um, big oil and traditional legacy crude oil products for probably uh, probably another while. I mean, like the the alternative energy products are very much available, and they're very safe to use and they've been tested and they're economical. I mean, that's one of the most important questions are, can people even afford them and do they know where to get them? But it's still going to be a while before those alternative energies are so available that they can easily fit into kind of the, our infrastructure and, and fit into our power grids. And, you know, there are a lot of things happening with, our relationship with countries in the Middle East right now. Those are significant levers when you think about alternative energy and traditional energy. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of fallout there. I think we just have to kind of watch and wait. And I'm certainly not an expert on this topic. I'm just a layperson sort of watching as these developments happen. But I love seeing, um, I, I love seeing the kind of revolution and of alternative energy and um, and the broad adoption of it, I think it's definitely a wonderful direction. Mm. Should we also keep an eye on the traditional um, companies like you suggest in your book? Uh, absolutely. I think all companies. I think, you know, if, if people are interested in something that a company is producing – We should educate ourselves about how they're doing that, about what's their business environment, you know, what what are their values and, and what is their mission and are they giving us what we need them to give us and, and kind of having that consumer voice, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I asked my, my previous guest because there's a lot of talk about the changes that happen within the industry of writing. And what is your thoughts on... Chat GPT and AI, since you are also from the field of IT? I think a, a lot of those tools and innovations are, are very exciting. And uh, I literally don't go one day without see, seeing something about it um, in the news. I think it's kind of scary to think uh, of, um, of AI tools when it comes to fiction writing. But I can see the value in it for things like marketing. 
you know, there, there are tools that you can use for, um, for an author newsletter. I, I'm not very good at finding, uh, at always finding catchy titles for things. The title of a newsletter or the title of a subheading in a newsletter. And there are tools that do that for people. You, mm -hmm. you can take your whole newsletter and dump it into a field and AI will completely rewrite it for you. Um, I think I'm starting to see as I'm reading online what things were written by AI and what things weren't. A lot of times I see um, an overabundance of exclamation points. That's kind of a tell that, that I see and, and a lot of very short paragraphs. And, you know, I think artificial intelligence mechanisms are, uh, are taking into consideration how people learn how people read, how people make decisions, how people develop sentiment or, uh, about something. So I think the technologies are amazing how um, the, the whole machine learning um, and generative AI technologies, they're, they're amazing. And I love watching them develop. I, don't, I, I can't see how I could use it in writing books. And in terms of how it's going to change the publishing landscape, I really don't know at this point. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's easier for you to stay on top since you are an indie author and you don't get pigeonholed by a more traditional way of publishing? Uh, I think that's a really good point, Edith. Um, and that's really one of the most important things about working with a small publisher is I think you have a lot of freedom and flexibility that you might not have when you're um, locked into like a three book contract with a traditional publisher. I mean, of course, the reach and the benefit of the larger stage that you have working with a larger publisher, there's there's no question that, um, that that's a wonderful thing. But I like the freedom and the flexibility that I have. And I'm realizing more and more how important that is to me. I have a publisher that um, that designs book covers and they have um, wonderful editors and my publisher is fine if I want to use an external book cover artist and use my own editor. I, they're not going to pay for it. I have to pay for it myself. But Indies United Publishing is, um, is really um, such a wonderful home for me. They, they're giving me everything that I need as an author. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot of flexibility with smaller publishers. But you know, that's not to say that an author wouldn't be able to negotiate freedoms and, and flexibility with a larger publisher. You know, I mean, like a, a publisher is going to be interested not just in one book, but in the author as, as a business commodity. They want them to keep writing books. And so they're going to do everything they can to keep that author happy and to cultivate a positive relationship back and forth. That's going to be a, a financial win-win for both of them. Mm, because publishing is still a business. It's a business, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a business that's based on um, on creativity and on ideation um, and on pulling something in here out into the world. But you know, there's a lot of business and strategy that goes with making what you're creating in here relevant to people who are reading books. I mean, the science of purchasing decisions. I mean, I, I could spend all day reading about that and I still would barely even touch it. And it changes all the time. That's that's mm. the interesting thing about it. Mm. To keep to keep your eye or your ear on the market more or less, how important is that for you? I mean, we know there are authors out there who keep a close eye on the market, on what people want. 
and the right for the market? So it, that's such a relevant question. Um, it's something that I was talking with um, with a novice author about yesterday. Um, when, when I work with younger um, or novice authors that are just starting to kind of pull that energy out of them and develop their writing voice, I like to guide them to not think about the market and instead just think about what wants to come out of them and create that open channel create enough fluidity with their writing. So when they turn on a faucet, clean water is going to come out every time. You know, when you first crank on that faucet and you've never turned it on, it's going to be rusty water. It's going to be brown and dirty. And you want that water to be clean and fresh and coming out every time you turn that faucet on. So in the beginning, I think it's important for authors to honor what wants to come out of their heart the stories that want to be told, the stories that are knocking on their, not knocking on the door saying, you're the vessel that's going to bring me to the world. I think that's terribly important for authenticity. And then once you become more experienced as an author, it is critically important to look at the market, to look at your genre, your subgenre, micro genres, and to see what people are reading and to understand who your audience is. Why are they interested in books like this? What are they interested in? Um, what are the questions that they want answered when they go to your book? What, what's their passion? What's their curiosity? And I think it's important for authors to not only ask those questions, but to go out into the community and meet readers to, to understand who your readers are. We can hear what readers think of our books by the reviews that they read, the, the reviews that they leave for us. Even more than that, we need to be going on social media and looking at their comments and create a channel where they can ask us questions and we answer them. We can do that on Goodreads. I learn a lot about my readers on TikTok and other social media platforms and going to um, events in person. I think it's terribly important. And I let what readers think of my books and what they want of my books to shape what I write. I mean, I am still staying authentic to what wants to come out, but you know, once I get that kind of first draft of the story, then I can bring in feedback from beta readers and from other readers when they say, how come you're not writing more about this? And I, I really thought this story was going to go in this direction. I might not end up going in that direction, but their feedback is precious. And I let them know that and I cultivate that feedback loop. Mm. And you said you, you pull out what's in there. So there is another book coming out very soon. And yes. I suppose that's something else you pulled out from, Write Your Heart. And what can you tell us about this book? It's called Terror Bay and it will be out, yes, in November, very soon. So tell right. us about tell us about this new book. Okay. So Terror Bay is a standalone thriller, so it's not a series, and it's about a former pediatrician turned detective named Kurt Farron. I call this a psychological thriller because um, the psychology of this character is one of the most important features of the story and a motivator for why he does what he does in the story. Um, I'll just read a little bit from the back of the book. After surviving a gunshot wound to the head, San Francisco homicide detective Kurt Farron is placed in medically induced coma 
in his unconscious state, he can't shake the vivid image of a mysterious woman, Genevieve Lucas, who appears to be summoning him. How does he know her name, and is she even real? Driven by an unshakable intuition, Kurt travels to Puget Sound to find her and uncover the truth. As he digs deeper, he realizes that his fate is inextricably tied to the enigmatic woman and a long-lost treasure that's been submerged for decades. So really the book is about Kurt Farron healing from a gunshot wound to the head um, and emerging from a temporary coma that he was put in um, to honor this new compulsion in his life to discover whether Genevieve Lucas is real or if she was just a figment of his imagination. He doesn't know where the name came from, but he goes looking for her. He convinces his San Francisco Police de de Department former partner to come along with him to Puget Sound, which is an area in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And they go to Bainbridge Island and he's looking for her. He looks online, he goes to Google, he types in the name Genevieve Lucas, and he finds um, several women who are in their 20s, and he says, no, no, that, that's not it. Um, the woman in his, uh, while he was in a coma, was scuba diving. And Kurt Farron, the main character, is also a scuba diver. So in some ways, this is sort of a maritime thriller, too, because there's a lot of water, there's a lot of diving that's involved in the story. And there's also a 19th century actual British shipwreck that's really at the heart of kind of the, the story mythology. I won't, I won't say the one word of what it's all about, but that shipwreck um, is, is terribly important. And there is an actual place um, called Terror Bay, two of them actually. One of them is in northern Canada, and another is um, off the coast of Kodiak Island in Alaska. So there was some interesting shipwreck, um, British shipwreck history that I did for this book. Um, also some geographical history that I did in Alaska and Canada, and that was really fun. That brings me to the question of research. Of course, you said you had contacts with the CIA and you have contacts with the police. Now I'm scared, actually. And <laughs> you did a lot of research. How much How much time do you spend doing research for your books? Uh, how much time? I, I uh, uh, This is not a scientific term, but I would just say a lot. And I think research is terribly important. I think gone are, I mean, unless you write fantasy novels where you're kind of like world building and making all of that up, if you're writing, um, if you're writing other genres, um, readers want to know where you were. They want to know what city you're in. Um, and they want to know, like, um, again, coming back to your point, um, part of this book takes place on Bainbridge Island. Um, the house on Bainbridge Island where some of the um, story takes place, I, I went to Google and I found an actual house and I had, I, I had the address of it and I showed like the, um, I, I showed the navigation and the streets leading up to it and the yard and um, I, I don't know who this person is. <laughs> So I, I'm not sure if they'll if they'll read the book and say, "Hey, that's my house." I mean, someone someone might. I didn't use their name, of course, but um, but yeah, I think that authenticity is terribly important, um, and it's really the most fun. You know, I I'm a lifelong musician. I grew up in a musical family, and a lot of times people have said, "How come you haven't written any um, any music themed?" Um, 
music themed thrillers and I know that world. What would be the fun in that? I want to write about things that I don't know so I can learn about them. But I'm, I'm very interested in um, in diving. My husband is a um, he's done a lot of scuba diving and also free diving. And um, also my editor, my my book editor, is a longtime scuba diver. So I I vetted a lot of the the um, kind of mechanical things that I wrote about uh, about diving with them. And I and there's a lot that I got wrong, even though I in, even though I researched it copiously online, there's still a lot that I got wrong and they and they fixed that. And that's the value of technical advisors in, in, in doing that research. Now I feel confident that if a scuba diver read this book, they would probably think it, it would be okay. Not to say that no one's going to find anything wrong with it. I mean, you never know. But um, but I did um, go the extra mile to uh, to check things with actual divers. So yeah, I, I spent a lot of time researching at every stage of the book and at every editing stage. And I think it's critically important. Mm. Now, silly question from me, of course. You just said your husband is a scuba diver himself. He's from Scotland. So, you know, you probably can anticipate the next question. Silly he, he's not... <laughs> <laughs> He's not actually from Scotland. His family is from okay. Scotland, and he's done. Uh, he did a lot of scuba diving earlier in his life, um, and and really more free diving. But no, go ahead and ask your question. The silly question would be, of course, did he ever dive in Loch Ness? I, I, we actually haven't been to Scotland. I've been there, but we haven't been there together. So he has not seen Nessie yet. But, um, <laughs> but I. I love I love all that stuff. I love that crime series Loch Ness, and uh, it's it's just such like candy for me. Every every time I see it, I'm like, ooh, I want more of that. So no, nothing to report yet. <laughs> okay, and it, it, uh, when you spoke about this Death in Paradise series, it also reminded me of a a talk of Robert Thorogood because he was at a crime event we also attended, and he was talking about Death in Paradise and. He was looking for for an idea and his wife gave him the newspaper and said, oh, come on, just read the papers. Maybe you can find something. And that's how the whole idea came to life because he read an mm -hmm. article about a, um, a police officer who was sent to the Caribbean to bring back a British citizen who had committed a crime. And that's where it all began. Wow. You, you just never know. I, I have a story about my husband, um, about this series, um, the series that Salt Island is in. Hot House is the first in the series. And um, I, my, my husband gives me names. He's really, he's really good at names. Like sometimes I'll say, um, I need a name for, for a copper. You know, he's like this age and this kind of a guy and I need a good name for him. And he'll say, okay. And like, you know, a few days or a week later, he'll say, uh, he'll, he'll give me a name and it'll, it'll either be a hit or a miss. I never know. Um, and one day he came up the stairs and he said, I, I have a name uh, that might be good for a character at some point. And I said, oh, okay, what is it? And he said, Derek Abernathy. And I said, love it. I love that name. Write it on a little piece of paper and put it at the top of my file on the top tray so I can kind of passively see it as I like walk by my office. And he did. And it stayed there for 18 months. And 18 months later, 
I started writing, uh, I wrote the first two sentences to Hot House, which is the first in the series. And I wrote a three book series from that name. Derek Abernathy is the partner investigator to Mari Elwin in Salt Island. So you, you just never know. I mean, we have to listen to our spouses because they see us uh, on this kind of tumultuous journey. And a lot of times they have wonderful ideas. I know mine certainly does. <laughs> There was a reference in your book to British culture, British pop culture, which um, which eludes me right now, which I thought I wanted to ask you about. But now it's gone. I'm sorry about that, dear listeners. And I thought I had to ask you about it. But but now it's mm -hmm. Now it's gone, and I thought you might be watching well, I, and reading a lot of British of British um, crime fiction. Oh, t tons! And I used to live in Exeter years ago too, a long time ago. I lived in Exeter for a year, and I loved it there. <laughs> yeah, I can understand it. Now I'm envious. <laughs> I have to tell you that. May I also ask you another question about the editing process? You mentioned when I said not getting lost in all the plot, uh, plot devices and all the threads you have woven into your story. That's important. And you, you put uh, reminders for you in your script. And when do you stop your editing process? Because you can edit and edit and edit and you will never come to the end because there's always something you, you would like to do better or something. When, when is the point for you personally when you say, okay, I'm going to leave it and it's going out there. It's, it's really hard. Uh, it's, you know, you think of abstract, um, abstract painters, Jackson Pollock, so many wonderful abstract painters. Um, and I, I used to be a painter years ago too, abstract. And um, I, I felt like there was never a point where I was actually done. And when it comes to writing, That's part of my sort of mental and psychological well-being that I have to reach a point where I'm willing to take my hands off of the keyboard and surrender. But I have to do my due diligence, too. I, I don't want to put out a book that has um, that has mistakes in it because readers will lose readers and reviewers and, and the community will lose faith in me. I have to do my job. I have readers that are interested in my books and I'm writing for them and I have to do my absolute best job to give them the highest possible quality. So when I write a book, I edit it three or four times before I give it to my editor. And my professional editor that I work with, Cindy Davis, she's amazing. We have several back and forths and she does pretty much three, sometimes four rounds of editing. She's wonderful. After I get it back from her, I send it to beta readers, four or five beta readers, and I look at what their comments are, and I incorporate those. And then I read it again for myself to come up with kind of like a sort of a final draft, not the final, 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 but a mostly final draft. And when I have that, I read it to myself aloud. That's kind of a new development in my process, because you can, you can hear things when you speak them that your eye doesn't see. So it's sort of a trick that I've started using. And, and I read it to myself and I make all of those changes. And then I do one more after that, reading it aloud. And then I send it to my publisher. And then my publisher formats it and sends me a proof that says, this is pretty much how it's going to look in printed form. This is your last chance to fix anything. And you would think at that point, 
that there'd be nothing to fix? Oh, no. Oh, wrong. <laughs> there's, there's a lot. The last time I think there were 38 changes that I asked her to make and she's, uh, she's very kind. I think, I, I think if there were 300, um, she would say, um, I think you need to, you know, get another editor or do some more editing, but no, there, there are still little things and they might not be mistakes at that point. They might just be refinements mm -hmm. that I wasn't able to see because I was up to my eyeballs in the story, you know? Mm, you're, you're too close. Yes. Mm. It's interesting that you said reading out loud that something someone else also said. It, it's different when you read it out loud than when you read it silently. Yep. And not only that, if you have someone else read it out loud, I've had my husband read certain chapters to me and I could hear things when he read it because he has kind of a different inflection and a different style of reading than me. I kind of blow through things really quickly. He read it more slowly and I could hear things in that delivery that I wasn't able to hear when I read it. So that's another trick that I use. I mean, I don't know if I could get him to read the entire 300 page book to me, but, um, but he does help me with that sometimes. Mm, yeah. Good advice, I'd say. And how easy do you find it to write dialogue? Um, I love writing dialogue. Writing is not hard for me to write. That's that's one of the easier parts of it. I think some of the attributions of dialogue, he said, she said, and um, uh, you, you have to be careful with that because you never want the reader to say, um, to, to be going along reading and thinking, wait, who was that? Who said that? You want, you want it to always be obvious to them who's speaking. But if you had, he, if you have, he said, she said, he said, she said, like all the way down the page, that's going to be exhausting. And you, you know, so it's, it's a fine balance. So the mechanics of it, but the actual speaking, um, I work very hard to sort of cultivate the two characters living inside my head. And a lot of times I'll sort of close my eyes and sit in like the thinking couch or something in my house. And I'll sort of watch the scene unfold in my head and I can see them talking to each other. And a lot of times I base my characters on actors too. So I can see them. I, I can actually see them together. So dialogue is one mm -hmm. of the most, is one of the funnest parts of writing for me. I can so relate to what you just said about seeing them acting out and then seeing actors playing out or talking out your, your dialogue. Absolutely can relate to that. And Lisa, you touched a little bit now on the future, what's coming next, Therapy, and the next book in your E&A series. What else can your fans look forward to? Uh, okay, so the third book in the series um, called Switch um, my cover artist, Tatiana from Vila Design, she just designed that cover and I couldn't love it more. I'm so excited about that. Um, I don't have a date for that publication, but it will probably be out sometime next summer. And then next November or December will probably be a, uh, a young adult thriller, a standalone thriller called Ooh. Specimen about a 17-year-old high school girl in San Francisco who gets kind of pulled down this rabbit hole. And um, yeah, the, I'm not going to say too much about that. But the title is Specimen, and uh, that might be next uh, November or December. Nice. And then I'm also writing 
a new book right now, something new that I think will be a standalone thriller, and I'm about 13,000 words into that right now. So we'll see how I do with that. Mm, sounds intriguing, everything. And is there anything else you would like our listeners to know? Yeah, I, I want your listeners to know how incredibly grateful I am to you, Edith, and the Book Lovers Companion podcast and all of the time and energy that you and, um, and media professionals like you spend lifting up authors and giving us that, bi <clears throat> giving us that bigger stage and making us known and visible and heard in other communities. That's terribly important. And we literally couldn't do this without you. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. You're welcome. Now I'm embarrassed because that's very kind of you to say. And I would also like to thank you for making time and finding time to do this today when we are recording this. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. You are going to join me or I am going to join you in the green room very shortly. So don't, don't leave right now. Just wait for me in the green room. Okay, see you there. Yep. Dear listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did and we'll meet again here. And please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you would like to support us, you can do so via Buy Us A Coffee or other platforms. Until next time.